0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. All right. Well, good morning, Northway family, those online, those here in the room. So glad you're with us. If I have another chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And man, what a gift. I don't know if you noticed you came into this room. There are now full seats that are out in front of us, every row here. And, uh, you know, what we've been doing here at Northway over the past several weeks is really just trying to slowly. Begin to lift some of those restrictions as we give more and more people time. Those who are who are wanting to and able to get vaccinated and to see kind of the numbers begin to drop as we've seen and and so slowly we're we're lifting some of those. We've added more seats. We're reducing some of the distancing. Um, we have ceased doing every other week rotations of attendance. So you can come every week now. And uh, we even got porta potties back here. And it's a it's a pretty sad deal when one of the signs of normalcy at Northway is when we've got porta potties back, all right? So that's where we're at right now. And uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, Lord willing, if things continue as they are, we're gonna lift full restrictions. And so, uh, Lord willing, Mother's Day, mask will be suggestive, encouraged, but nonetheless not required, and we will have full capacity. And uh, and we're gonna, what I'm gonna ask for is that we just continue as we did on the front end of this pandemic, as we, Lord willing, tail here towards the end we would just continue to show grace to one another. And it also means things are going to change. We're going to have to start doing, we're going to get rid of uh, the online reservations here soon, which means it's first come, first serve, which means that we're going to probably have to start doing some migration announcements. Hey, we need you to go to the 1115. We need you to go to the 4 p.m. Help us out there. We're going to be doing some scoot-ins. Remember those back in the ancient of days? We had to do scoot-ins. We're going to be doing those again. And so just grace upon grace for one another. We are still going to continue offering online availability uh, for a good chunk of the rest of this year, just to continue to give that space for those who need it. But by God's grace, uh, we want to get back to our regular rhythms here um, of worshiping together in physical presence here uh, in the presence of the Lord. And so grateful you're with us, grateful for your just willingness to serve and, and unify here as a church in that regard. So that being said, let's turn now to the book of Romans, can we? If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Man, we are 10 chapters in now in our study of the book of Romans. And what we have been looking at right now over the last several weeks is the sovereignty of God in salvation and an exalted view of God in his sovereignty concerning Our salvation, the fact that God has, what scripture has told us here, God has elected some to be saved by his mercy, and he has also hardened others through his mercy. It is mercy from beginning to end that will bring some to faith and harden over others, and it is all part of God's sovereign plan from beginning to end, his sovereign choice that works in accordance with his perfect will to bring about the glory of his name and the good of his elect. And what Paul did specifically in chapter nine was kind of pull back the theological curtains for us so we can see the inner workings of why and how God saves and secures. And this whole process of God's sovereign choice that began before the foundations of the earth were even laid in eternity past, Paul simply takes this argument of God's sovereign choice and he puts it against the backdrop of specifically of Israel's past. Uh, Throughout the history of Israel, God's sovereign choice has always been on display. God chose Abraham. He could have chosen anybody, but he chose Abraham over all the other peoples to carry the blessing of his promise of how he would save and redeem and whom he would do that through. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. He always has chosen a remnant, even when his people were dispersed, worthy of their condemnation for the rebellion and idolatry towards him. God was always faithful in his mercy to save a remnant, to bring back and to restore. And so Israel's past has always been marked by the sovereign choice of God. But the question that Paul will have as we move into chapter 10 is what about Israel's present? What about their present condition? And we saw back in chapter nine, verse six, the question being posed, why is there so much rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the very people whom God first promised he would deliver that Messiah too. Why is there so much rejection? Is it that God's promises have failed? And Paul emphatically answered that in Romans chapter nine, no, they did not fail. But certainly and truthfully, we know that God is still in the business of redeeming even Jews. Well, I know many Jews. There are Jews all over this planet who are putting their faith in Jesus Christ. For them, we wouldn't call it a conversion, we'd call it a completion. They are simply trusting in the Messiah that has always been promised to them. I know personally many friends who are Jewish brothers and sisters that I've walked with who have, by God's mercy, put their faith in Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus to be whom God said he was going to be, their Messiah, and have repented over their sin, their self-righteousness, and put their trust in Jesus Christ. So no doubt, God's promises have not failed. His promise was never to a physical lineage or a genealogy. God's promise was always to a spiritual people who would put their trust in Jesus Christ, and we're seeing that happen. But certainly, in terms of numbers, it does appear that the vast majority of Jews on this earth have indeed rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Uh, every year, every time that I go lead a trip, uh, study trip to Israel, um, I love our guides. They're amazing. I mean, the guys are just so, so smart and understand not only their their Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but they understand their New Testament in many ways. They've they understand it better than I in terms of just sheer knowledge. But it's always interesting. Many of them, when I go over there, would just have good, honest conversations about Jesus. These are uh, native Hebrews, and we'll have conversations about Jesus and. Well, just lay it all out there and go, man, all those prophets, all those promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah who would come, Isaiah 53, the most descriptive piece about the Messiah would suffer and he would be pierced for our transgressions. I mean, all, all these promises, do, do you not see that, that that was Jesus? Jesus fulfilled those. And one of the, the tragedies many times is in folks that I've shared with many uh, faithful Jewish brothers over there would just simply go and... Man, it, it could be. We'll find out in the end. And I'm just like, no, it'll be too late. Like now, today is the day of salvation. And, and, and so what are we to make of this? What are we to make of God's promises specifically towards Israel? How will God accomplish his plan for saving his elect from Israel as well as anyone on the face of this earth who has not currently placed their faith in Jesus Christ, how does God save? Welcome to chapter 10. In verse 1, Paul is going to reiterate, just as he did at the beginning of chapter 9, his prayerful heart for his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters he says in verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Does Paul love his lost brothers and sisters who have rejected Jesus? Absolutely. His heart breaks for his fellow kinsmen. Does Paul pray for them? Of course. He intercedes for them. Does this... Does, by the way, incidentally, the doctrine of sovereign election, does it drive away our heart for the lost? No, it does not. Does it eradicate the need to pray for the salvation of those who have rejected Christ? No, it does not. If anything, we see it right here, the Apostle Paul broken for the condition of his lost kinsmen around him in the same way that I pray you and I feel a brokenness over those around us who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. This chapter 10, verse 1, was exactly the condition of my heart after the Lord saved and redeemed me and opened my eyes to the reality of his mercy, the reality of his righteousness and his ability to save, and then the present reality of all my family members who were rejecting that same message that I just came to believe in and have interceded in prayer. And by God's grace, I have seen, since my salvation, several of my family members turn to faith in Jesus Christ. But there are many that have not, and I still lament and I still pray for them and ask that God would save them and redeem them. So no, sovereign election does not drive away our prayer for the salvation of those who have rejected Jesus. We pray because in verse two, Paul says, these... People, while sincere in their own faith, are sincerely misled and they are in need of divine intervention. Paul says this about his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Jesus. He says in verse 2 For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Did Israel have a zeal for God? Do present day Jews? have a zeal for God unashamedly? Yes, they do. I don't know if you've spent any time with very committed Jewish brothers and sisters. Again, every time I go to Israel, I'll, I'll see this, and you'll see it most explicitly, like in terms of outward forms of zeal. You'll see it if you go to the Western Wall, and you'll see men and women bowed in prayer, taking little notes of prayers they write on papers, and tucking them in the crevices of the Western Wall, which is the closest they can get to where the temple once stood. And they're just tucking those prayers in and they're just, in, they're just going to the Lord in prayer incessantly. I mean, just going crazy in prayer. And you'll see them takingly like, some of the Hasidic Jews, the most Orthodox Jews in the world are right there at the Western Wall and they are literally taking Deuteronomy 6 literally, which says, Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, you're not to have any other gods. He's, he's the God, you're to worship him with everything that you are, and you're to teach this to your kids. You're to bind God's word on your forehead, and what they'll do is they'll take these phylacteries, and they'll literally, they'll put the word of God on their forehead and strap it down, and they'll take the word of God, and they'll bind it in these straps on their wrists, and they're so intent because they're so zealous for God. But you see in verse two, here is the tragic flaw that Paul is trying to expose, even in religious zeal. When he says at the end of verse two, even though they have a zeal for God, that zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. It's a great zeal. It's just a zeal that doesn't put in accordance with truth. Question, is it possible to be sincere and devoted and convinced of something in your heart to be true, and yet at the end of the day, be sincerely wrong in that sincerity. Case in point, every Dallas Cowboys fan that's ever lived. All right, It is possible to be sincere and yet not in accordance with truth. And yet Paul says the same here for Israel. The problem is is that while they are sincere in their pursuit of God and they mean well, they are not pursuing him according to God's standard of how God has said to be pursued. In other words, they have a standard of truth, and rather than submitting to that truth, they have taken that truth and bent it towards their own righteousness. Tried to make the truth accommodate what they want rather than accommodating what God has required. Do y'all know anybody out there who will not want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because of their pursuit of God? Have you ever met somebody like that who will not, they are so zealous in their faith, they are so zealous in their religious deeds, they are so zealous in their perceived pathway of works to God, they're so zealous of God that they can't actually pursue God in the way that God has demanded to be pursued through Jesus Christ. Like, it is possible to be committed to a religion without being committed to God. It is possible to be committed to your own perception of God and not being committed to Jesus Christ. There are religions all over this world. There are faithful, zealous people in religious communities here in our culture who are zealously pursuing God by their own works, but not in accordance with the grace of Jesus Christ which is the only standard of salvation, exchanging the righteousness of Christ for their own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. And in verse three, what Paul does, Paul is gonna give us three reasons in verse three, why a self-righteous person will ultimately reject Jesus Christ as their savior. These three reasons are significant. If you want one verse in your Bible that describes what we see by and large of our culture, of why so many men and women refuse to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's right here in verse three. Notice the first reason right out of the gate, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. This is the first reason why people reject Jesus is because they are ignorant concerning God's righteousness. God is perfectly holy. He is in need of nothing. He is without sin. And any time in the Bible, you see a human being encounter the presence of God in God's fullness of holiness. Every time, what happens with that individual? Every time, do you know? They fall down on their face, unworthy to even stand in the presence of the glory of God. Abraham fell down, Moses fell down, uh, Joshua fell down, Isaiah fell down. You see Ezekiel, Daniel, we can go to the New Testament, you see Peter, James, John in the book of Revelation at the uh, transfiguration of Christ. Every time, every time when they're confronted, the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, whenever the glory of God, the righteous presence of God breaks through, Sinful human beings have no other choice but to fall down on the ground and confess as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips when I stand in his presence. Do you think that if for one moment you and I could actually see the glory of God for all that it is, if you stood in the direct, immediate presence of God right now and were able to even have a glimpse at it, do you think for even one moment we would try in and of ourselves to defend our own righteousness before that God? Like we so easily do on social media with our fellow human beings, where we try to prove that our righteousness is superior to theirs. Our knowledge is superior to theirs. Do you think if we stood in the presence of God, we would even dare do that? That would be like me just getting a few minutes with Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and just flapping a $20 bill in front of their face. Look what I've earned. Look what I've earned. Isn't this amazing? And I'm just putting it up in front of them. It's a 20? is this is brilliant? Tonight, taco bueno on me, bro. I'm taking you out. We're going to eat it good tonight. Mexi-dips and chips, go for it. 20 bucks, right there. Somebody amen that. (laughs) And yet, you know what they would do? All it takes is Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk opening up their wallets and going, okay, let's see your 20 for a second. Let's talk about what true wealth looks like right here. Let's talk about where we're going to dinner tonight. In the same way, this is what sinful humanity does with God is we try to demonstrate our righteousness, our worthiness, how much we've earned and deserved the salvation of God through our own merit. And yet, if for just a moment, we really glimpsed the righteousness of God. I told you right out of the gate in Romans 1, this is the problem in the book of Romans. It's not how a loving God can send a good person to hell. It's how can a holy God, allow a sinful person in his presence. And the truth is we don't see the righteousness for God as we should. We like to compare our righteousness to everybody else. And I've said before, that is like lowering my rim on my driveway to about six feet and just dunking all over my daughters and telling them what an awesome basketball player I am. Until LeBron or MJ or somebody else shows up and we've got a different standard we're playing with. Paul says this is the first reason why Israel has rejected Jesus Christ and why anybody else on the face of this planet will reject Jesus Christ is because we do not see the righteousness of God as we should. And what happens? Inevitably, when that happens, when we underplay the righteousness of God, the second thing in verse 3 always happens, and that is we will overplay our righteousness whenever we diminish God's. He says in verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, then seeking to establish their own. Whenever your theology of God is off, it'll always affect your anthropology. Whenever we lower the theology of God, we will by nature exalt the anthropology of man. It goes hand in hand. And if we are unaware of who exactly God is and we start minimizing his righteousness, we can't help but exalt ours. Again, just take the old evangelism explosion diagnostic. Go find anybody who believes in a divine being, especially in the South, and ask them why they will end up in heaven one day. Inevitably, what we were prone to do is list our own resume. The first thing out of our mouths is, well, let me tell you what I haven't done. Let me tell you what I have done, why I deserve this. We just start listening to It's comparative righteousness with the righteousness of other people, but it's not with God. And whenever somebody does that, whenever we seek to defend our own righteousness, it means that we do not understand rightly the righteousness of God. Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse six, we have all become like those who are unclean. And our filthy deeds are like polluted garments. They are like filthy rags before God. Even our best works, when you put them next to God's, they don't even compare. A weak theology always leads to an overinflated anthropology, holding up our $20 to God's billions. And the third reason, inevitably, that comes after that, Paul says, after we seek to establish our own righteousness, we will not submit to God's righteousness. And so because we, we think we don't need it. When we lower God's righteousness, we exalt ours, and we, we don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus. You don't need what you don't think you already have. I mean, you don't need it. In the context of this verse, by the way, what do you think the righteousness of God is that we are seeking to replace? Notice, you'll see this in verse 4. It's actually not a what, it's a who. The righteousness of God is Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full manifestation of the righteousness of God. The perfect requirements that the law of God demanded were found in Jesus. They were not found in us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus he came to fulfill the righteous requirements. He lived on this earth without sin. He never rebelled against God. No idolatry, no sin found in his heart. He perfectly fulfilled those commandments for us because he knew we couldn't. And at the same time, he absorbed the just penalty of that, those requirements, which was death, and Jesus took that for us on the cross. He is the perfect fulfillment of the righteousness of God. And Paul gives us this threefold path of rejection. When we're ignorant of God's righteousness, it'll lead to the exaltation of our righteousness, and then we just don't need Jesus. We don't see that who he is and what he did matters. Verse 3 is a perfect example of not only Israel's present condition right now, but all who will seek to find the salvation that they are looking for through their own works. So to the self-righteous person, we don't feel like we need Jesus. But Paul flips it in verse 4. Notice in verse 4 who Jesus, who Christ is to the non-self-righteous person, the person who's willing to admit that they have actually fallen short of God's perfect righteousness. Who does Jesus become to you then? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Christ terminates the law as a means for righteousness. Now he doesn't terminate the law, the law still exists. The law is perfect, the law is good. Jesus has simply fulfilled the law for us. But he puts an end to the law as a means for our righteousness, meaning our trying to do the work ourselves. And for the Christian, salvation comes by trusting in the work of Christ that has now already been provided rather than seeking to do the work on our own and somehow earn that salvation. So right there in verses one through four, by the way, is Paul's understanding of Israel's present condition, of people who will not cling to Jesus Christ because they are too busy clinging to themselves. They don't want the righteousness of God because they can get it on their own, so they think. And thus they stand condemned before a holy God. Now in verses 5 through 11, Paul is going to show us the terms of salvation. What we've seen so far, what it is that does not save us when we cling to our own righteousness rather than God's. But now Paul is going to flip it and he's going to show us what does save a human being. Now if you're just joining us in this series, by the way, I've got good news for you you're gonna get a recap of all nine chapters of Romans in just a couple of verses right here. This is a great synthesizing week for Romans right here. How do we get saved? There are two possible ways that you can get saved. One is gonna be hypothetical and one is gonna be actual. Notice the hypothetical one in verse five. Here is, here is how you could hypothetically be save. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Meaning, if you want to find salvation through obeying the Ten Commandments, then what are you going to have to do in order to receive that salvation through the commandments? You're going to have to obey them. How well are you going to have to obey them? perfectly. How long are you going to have to obey them perfectly? All the time, to the end of your life, to your very last breath, all the way to the end with not one sin, not one evil thought, not one act of rebellion. The very last thing that you will do on planet earth is treating the lady who's unplugging your life support with kindness that'll be the last thing, all the way to the end. Now, is that possible? Anybody want to try that? No, it's too late. We've already messed up. We we can't even come into this world without thinking about ourselves, pursuing our own self-righteousness, and sinning against God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So hypothetically, you could be saved by obeying perfectly. There's only one person on earth who's ever done that. That is Jesus Christ. It's the only one. So that ain't gonna be an answer for us. Trying to do the 10 commandments is futile. However, in verse six, thank God that there is a plan B. There is another option for salvation. There is a righteousness that we can find that is not based upon our own works and our own merits, but one that is based on trusting in someone else. And notice here in his response, verse six through eight, just scan verse six through eight. You know what you see there? You see a bunch of Old Testament quotes. You know where those are from? Those are quotes from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. All those quotes we're about to read are from the book of Deuteronomy. It was right after Moses had received the law from God, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, right after that, God, after he gave Moses the law, God told Moses, God told the people that now that he's giving them this law, his word, his law is complete. Everything that they need to know about the righteous requirements of God for salvation are fully here. Um, Everything they need to know is contained within the law. God told Moses to tell the people, you don't have to go looking anywhere else To find salvation. It is all right here. You don't have to go looking for some new knowledge, some mysterious, you know, unfound knowledge that you're going to discover that will lead you to an eternal state. Everything that you need is right here. He told Moses specifically to tell the people, you don't have to go swim across the abyss. That's the ocean. You don't have to go swim across the deep plunge to the depths of the deep in order to find some mysterious knowledge that will save you. Nor do you have to ascend into the heavens. You don't have to go climb in Everest in order to find some some new knowledge and some mysterious knowledge about God's requirements for salvation. Everything you need to know for salvation is right here in the law. It is in the Word of God. So Paul is going to take those quotes from Deuteronomy And he's going to apply it right here to the righteousness and salvation that can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at this in verse 6. He says, the righteousness that is based on faith, not works in verse 5, but faith in verse 6, says this, Do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Meaning, in the provision of Christ, the fulfillment of God's law, you don't have to ascend to heaven in order to find salvation. Why? And you see, Paul puts it in parentheses because Christ has come down. You don't have to ascend to God, God has descended for you. He has come for you. And in verse seven, you don't have to descend to the depths of the abyss, why? Because Christ has been raised for you. You don't have to go up because God came down. You don't have to go down because God came up. Christ rose from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And then he ascended victoriously on high to the right hand of God where he is to this day. So no, you don't have to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca in order to find salvation. You don't have to go trudging through the jungles of Thailand to ascend the steps in Chiang Mai to ring some bells at the temple in order to worship Gautama. You don't have to go ascend to some final stage of nirvana in order to find your true self. You don't have to go backpacking across Europe in order to find who you are. And you don't have to go consulting Rabbi Google for those answers either because everything that you need for salvation has been given to you in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross for you, his incarnation, his perfect life, the perfect fulfillment of that law, his conquering sin, Satan, and death through his death and his resurrection. Everything you need to be saved and made right with God was accomplished for you in Jesus Christ. It is finished. There is no other option. So all you need to do, because the word of God in verse eight is near, it is right here before you, all you have to do to receive this salvation is in verse nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You don't have to do anything to earn salvation. All you have to do is receive it, that work that has been done for you. And you do so by believing and confessing. By the way, verse 9 is a summary of verses 6 through 7. Verse 6 focused on the person of Christ. Jesus was the incarnate baby in in uh, Bethlehem. Jesus was God who came to earth in the flesh. To confess Jesus as Lord to a Jew was acknowledging that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't a good prophet or just a good man. He was actually Lord. That baby in the manger was God himself. That was Emmanuel, God with us. He is the fulfillment of all those promises made that God would send a deliverer. That is to confess him as Lord. Verse seven, however, doesn't just focus on the person of Christ. Verse seven focused on the work of Christ. To believe in your heart that Jesus not only died on the cross for your sins, but that he rose from the dead to give you new life and a righteousness that you could not earn or deserve on your own. To to believe that, to confess and to believe is salvation. We have Christmas in verse six. We have Easter in verse seven. And in verse nine, Paul says, the only thing that you need to do to obtain the righteousness that is required by God is you need to put your trust in God's provision, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the result is you will be saved. This is what Paul is telling us. And verse 10, by the way, simply shows you the natural correlation between belief and confession. These are not two separate things. This is actually one and the same, two different sides of the coin. He says in verse 10, he says, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Understand again, these are not two separate things, one and the same. The words righteousness And salvation, they are synonymous in the book of Romans. That's why we call the series, just straight out of Romans 1, 16 and 17, Righteousness Revealed. Because what salvation is, is righteousness. We lack the righteousness that we need in order to stand in the presence of God, but God has given us that righteousness through Jesus Christ, that we put our trust in him and have that righteousness deposited to our account. Righteousness and salvation are synonymous. To be saved is to possess the righteousness of God. But notice here, Paul also feels that internal belief and outward confession, outward expression, go hand in hand, meaning there is no such thing as a privatized faith. True belief always goes public. So many times I've encountered folks where we get down and we start talking about their faith, they go, I don't really want to talk about it. And they'll say, my faith is what? They'll say, it's, it's, it's a private faith. It's personal, right? It's for me. And I'll go, no, 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 no. That's not what the scriptures teach. Yes, your faith is deeply personal, but it is anything but private. And it has been this way in the beginning. It's the reason, remember in the book of Exodus, Remember when God was gonna bring his people out, told them to take a lamb, sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that lamb. Where did they have to put the blood? Had to put it on the doorframe of their house, the front door. He didn't say go put the blood on the back closet in the back of your room where only you know where that is. You're gonna put it out in front so everybody and their dog knows what you're taking refuge in. That is not your own works, it is the work of God. And you're gonna put that straight up front and then the angel of death would pass over. In the same way, we see baptism being that as well. Baptism is deeply personal, yes, but it is not private. It's why we, it is a public testimony that I have been buried with Christ and I've been raised to walk in the newness of life. It's why Christ commands that every person who puts their faith in Jesus in in, uh, Matthew 28 gets baptized. It's not an option. It's your testimony that you are under the covering of God's rescue plan through Jesus Christ. There is no other option, and I'm here to publicly testify that Christ has redeemed me. It is deeply personal, but it is anything but private, and those two aspects of our salvation, our belief and our confession, are really one and the same. They go hand in hand, and so if indeed the work of Christ has been provided for you and for me, then who in verse 11, again, is it accessible to? If the work has been provided, who is it accessible or available to? You see this in verse 11? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, anyone, who places their faith in Jesus will not be ashamed. Literally, they will not be disappointed. On the last day of judgment, when God judges the world and your covering is Jesus Christ, there will be no shame. You may be mocked for your faith right now. You may be now a very present minority in our culture right now with your faith in Jesus Christ. It may seem like something to be embarrassed of given the backdrop of our media narratives and the culture around us and our coworkers and our family members. There is a day coming when God will show the open shame of the rest of the world who has rejected Jesus. And you in that moment will not be ashamed. You will be fully vindicated in your faith through Jesus Christ. And that is the opposite of the one who is trusting in their own works. They will be disappointed on that day. They will be put to shame. When you come by faith alone in Christ alone, you will not be turned away by Jesus Christ. Why is this true? Because in verse 12 and 13, we'll close here, what kind of God are we talking about? He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. And he quotes Isaiah, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's making faith in Jesus as the only prerequisite for salvation tells us that God ain't playing favorites here. If God's salvation, if our salvation from God were to rest on our socioeconomic status or our ethnic backgrounds or our morality as compared to somebody else's, God help us. We have Darwinism at play here. But that's not how salvation goes. Our God doesn't save that way, He doesn't play favorites. God doesn't show partiality based on some human standard of preference. No, it is whoever comes by faith. Faith is the ultimate leveler on the playing field. If you have to come by works, then you better be better. You better be the best. But if you're coming by faith, anybody, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave free, doesn't matter, justification is available for you in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is put your trust in him. No matter who you are, where you're from, no matter what you've done, It is met perfectly in Jesus Christ when it is received by faith. He will not turn you away, whether you're a Jew, a Greek, or Bob from deep element. It doesn't matter. Salvation is available to you. Is that a fact? That is a fact. Now, do you see what Paul just did here, right out of the gate in Romans 10? He has presented us with two sides now of a salvific coin. You remember, in chapter 8, Paul made a statement Essentially, once you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can never be separated from him. Your salvation is secure. You go, how do you know? And in chapter nine, remember what Paul did. He said, I don't have to do this, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna pull back the theological curtains and I'm gonna give you a peek into the inner room of God and it's gonna blow your mind. You're not even gonna be able to get your finite mind around it. But the fact is, is that God actually chose you to be holy and blameless in Christ before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. You had nothing to do with that. God chooses whom he's gonna save. And we all, <clears throat> last couple of weeks, have been blowing up, right? And then what Paul does in chapter 10, he closes those curtains back, takes us back down to earth and goes, okay, now let's just simply speak to your responsibility in it. Your responsibility is simply to believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ. God is sovereign, we are responsible. Do those things contradict? Not at all. Are they hard to comprehend? Absolutely. But Paul is simply saying here now in chapter 10, all that matters right now is that right now, all the tensions you've had, even in sovereign election, hold those, suspend those for just a moment, all that matters right now is that you actually See and receive God's plan for your salvation. If you want to know why the earth and the world around us is so broken right now, the Bible tells us it's because of sin. It is because of our rebellion towards God, our idolatry to want to replace the creator with the creation. This is, we're all guilty of it. That is why the world is broken, because God cursed the earth, and he cursed humanity because of our sin from Genesis 3 forward. And that sin, by the way, isn't just out there. It's not just those people. It's in here. It's us. It's you and me. And the truth is, God is going to judge the world, and he's going to judge every one of us because of sin. And Romans 1 has actually said he's actually already started judging us by simply giving us over to what we want. You can just look at people chasing the lust of their flesh. That is evidence of God's judgment already upon a culture when they have rejected God and are pursuing their own flesh. But Hebrews 9 tells us there is a day coming, a day that has already been fixed after we die, when God will hold us accountable for our sin. He will judge us for our sin. But the good news is that he has found a way to take that judgment off of us and put it on another. Through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived a perfect and blameless life, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, absorbing the death that we deserved on the cross, shedding his blood that we might be forgiven, that we could, by faith in him, receive his righteousness credited to our account. By faith alone, in Christ alone, as nothing less than his mercy and grace alone. And that what our role now is, and this is why Romans 10 brings us to this point, y'all, is that we have to, make a, we have to come to a, a conclusion about our understanding of God, his righteousness, and what his requirements are. And he has called us to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. To confess our sin, that means to agree with God and what his definitions of sin are, not what ours are. To agree with him and where we have erred, in him, where we have rebelled against him, where we have where we have exchanged the truth of him with a lie, we are to repent of that. We are to turn away from our sins. Instead, we are to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He is God's provision as our salvation. And we are to put our trust in the person and work of Jesus that we might receive salvation. And the promise is when you do that, you will be saved and he will secure you, and he will day by day begin to transform you through the power of his Holy Spirit who abides within you, and he has sealed you and secured you until the coming day when Jesus returns triumphantly will judge the rest of the world, and he will establish the fullness of his kingdom once and for all, where you will never taste death, never taste sorrow, never taste sin again, because it has all been perfectly dealt with through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And your job and my job is to not turn away from that, but to respond to that. And I just want to make a strong plea right here. Romans 10 brings us to this point. I don't want to go a second further in the book of Romans until we have dealt with this. You can love Jesus Christ. You can despise Jesus Christ. Listen, you cannot ignore him. If these truths are true, if these these promises here are true, then it deserves total abandonment of self and full faith in Jesus Christ to spend the rest of our days serving and worshiping him. There cannot be a middle ground. And I pray for believers in this room who have been walking through complacency that this text would obliterate our complacency, that would show us that Jesus is the true king. We would submit to him and we would spend the rest of our days unashamedly worshiping and serving him. And I pray that if there are any in this room today who you have not trusted in Jesus, you have been trusting in your own morality, your own versions of God, your own religiosity, that you would see those for what they truly are. You may be zealous, but there is not a zeal that is in accordance with truth. The truth is that only in Jesus Christ can you find your righteousness. And I pray that you would turn away from Christ, or turn away from your, your sin, and you would turn to Jesus Christ and receive the salvation that he has. This is God's grace. It's God's mercy for you. He loves you. No matter where you've been, he has loved you with an everlasting love. He's moved heaven and earth to give Jesus for you. Oh, might your heart be softened to that, that you would turn to Jesus and receive his righteousness once and for all. Let's pray to that end and then we'll take communion here together. Father, help us to see this truth for what it really is. Oh God, would you just shake us up in any complacency that we have. If this is true, then we owe our lives to you. We don't owe you second best. We owe you first fruits to the God who has found a way to save and redeem sinners like ourselves. And Father, I pray right now the power of your Holy Spirit, would you just search this room to any who have been wavering, to any who have rejected you, to any who are feeling the shame and condemnation of their own sin. Oh God, to let them know that has all been taken care of on the cross. God, would you melt hearts of stone, give us hearts of flesh to receive Jesus as our Lord. God, we pray this for the glory of your name, for the good of your elect, your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.